Zach, I'm hearing reports that there's going to be a Christmas special of the Midfield Politics podcast. Is that true? Well, I mean, there definitely won't be any social distancing. Um, there might be cheese. There might be wine. I mean, what, is, what even is hosting a podcast these days? I mean, oh, this is being recorded, isn't it? It is being recorded. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Midfield Politics podcast. My name is Luke James. And as always, I'm joined across the dispatch box, virtually, of course, by none other than Zach Green. Today's episode, again, we haven't really got much of a plan of where we're going to go, but it has been a very, 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 very busy week in the world of Westminster. But this is a political scandal that has well and truly cut through. So, Zach, um, we'll start with the usual question. Well, first of all, how are you? And second of all, what has caught your attention over the past seven days, it's been quite a remarkable seven days. So I think that's an interesting place to start. It, it was weird, wasn't it? In the last episode, we were talking about how this Christmas party might eventually die down. You know, there's reports of this rule breaking thing. And then all of a sudden, it's dominated this week's headlines and will probably dominate next week's headlines as well. Um, as you can probably hear, I'm, I'm a bit flued up. Don't worry, I've not got COVID. I've tested myself repeatedly. It's just been very unfortunate after a really good week actually of just going out and just enjoying uni i've been kind of hit with a plane with the flu but um i'm, I'm pretty well how about you pretty good um so <laughs> listeners might remember that the last time there was a major well not the last time because there's been a lot of controversies in, in government this week but the last major standalone controversy before what we've had <laughs> recently was the Matt Hancock um, situation where he was obviously caught on film breaking his own COVID rules in his office. Um, at that point in time, I was um, sent into self-isolation because I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been a close contact of someone with COVID. Um, and then this week, um, I have again been put briefly into self-isolation because I'm a close contact with someone who has COVID. Thankfully, I'm double vaccinated and the the case isn't omicron and and i'm testing negative so it's all good so i can go out but yeah it, it's it's been a bit weird how seemingly every time i have to self-isolate it, it coincides with a major government crisis um but no i'm good um the thing that's playing on my mind aside from politics today is is the formula one i'm a bit upset <laughs> after that so we won't talk about it but no i'm good zach i you didn't answer the question you, you didn't say whether or not you were good apart from your cold so i guess you kind of did um but yeah what a week zach and i as we always do before and after the podcast we always talk for a little while about the podcast and football and, and just general nonsense we've we've been sat here for a good 20 minutes talking about basically the show and what we're going to talk about um i think it's going to be an interesting one so Zach, this week, and I should say, we're going off the cuff here. I've not planned the show out where, where we're going to go and where we're going to take this. This week has been explosive in Westminster because we've had stories break over the last 24 to 48 hours that not only indicate the Prime Minister's personal role in some of these, well, in a Christmas party. Um, the, that story, the, the one by, by from, the, from the Mirror, has put a hammer through the Prime Minister's previous defence, that he wasn't aware of any wrongdoing, he wasn't aware of the party, when it looks like after the last seven days that these parties were not 
a one-off occurrence and that he very much was aware that they were happening what what have you made of the whole week it's been it's been a long one if you're if you're a fan of the government i guess i I think it's the the classic death by a thousand cuts wasn't it that it's been so beautifully played so since the original christmas downing street party of last week was broken by the mirror and pippa korea who's i think been fantastic throughout this whole thing it's journalism that we do need in this country. It's world-class journalism. Um, it started with the government denying that anything ever happened. And then the next part, the next slew of allegations comes up. And then the next bit of proof comes up. And then we had the, the recording of Allegra Stratton that we kind of referenced tongue-in-cheek at the start about joking about a Christmas party last year in the event that it did get reported. And bizarrely, last year, such a party wasn't reported and now all of a sudden it's come out and then Boris Johnson in his denial has thrown his staff under the bus over this and then almost almost coincidentally after being thrown under the bus reports in the room that the Prime Minister actually did know what was going on who's hosting part of the quiz I mean it's been such a week hasn't it it's a hammer blow I think for Boris Johnson it's a hammer blow to the government it's red meat to the opposition. And I think you know, we've spoken about how Boris Johnson's this Heineken Tory, kind of the all things to all people Tory. I think now that's turned on him. The public opinion has absolutely soured. You just have to look at the polls, for example, that the majority of people being polled thinks he should resign. His personal ratings are you know, in the minus 30s and 40s. Now, that's Corbyn levels of unpopularity. Even on question time, um, I can't remember for the life of me. Oh, Hendon, that's where it was uh, this week. Virtually everyone in that room wanted Boris Johnson to resign. Virtually everyone was very angry at the government. And it's that once in a blue moon kind of event that turns people against the government. And it's quite ironic. I think we said this right before we come on air. But of all the bad things the government has done, uh, and the Conservative government have done since 2010, it could be that this Conservative party is finished off by a Christmas party, which is so delightfully yet so brutally British, isn't it? It is crazy. It really is crazy. I, I sent you a message in the week, Zach. I think this was on Wednesday, the day of PMQs, obviously, and and, and when some of the, the, the first stories came to light about this. I said to you... Is this the worst day the government has had so far in terms of just politically and uh, how have you amongst the electorate? And your response was completely right. And it was the thing I'd thought of as well. And your response was basically, well, it shouldn't be because they've had days where like thousands of people have died of the coronavirus. And obviously it's their job to, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm fleshing out what you said. Um, It's their job to make sure that thousands of people didn't die per day of the coronavirus which is completely right. But in terms of the reputational damage that the Prime Minister and, and the government and the Conservative Party suffered this week, even earlier early in the week, I thought was cataclysmically bad. I thought it was much worse than Barnard Castle. I thought it was much worse than Matt Hancock snogging someone. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just... I, I thought the Christmas party stuff was horrifically bad politics, horrifically bad PR for one reason, one reason alone. It was, <clears throat> it's so easy to object to, like <clears throat> viscerally a, a, 
objective because this is this was happening at a time when much of the country was in tier three or tier four or whatever the tiers were called at that time couldn't see their loved ones there were people dying in care homes or people dying in hospital and people couldn't go and see their loved ones people like I, i'm looking at an independent article which has um is is a timeline of lockdown restrictions basically over the past 18 months and and the headline for, for december the 19th last year is pm cancels christmas like that happened and i don't think the way that's phrased is particularly creative I, I think that's a fairly accurate representation of what happened he did essentially cancel yeah. christmas last year for lots and lots of people and yet people in downing street on the 15th of december throughout november when lockdown restrictions were in place were having christmas parties it's obscene isn't it like it's when you strike the contrast between what was happening in downing street and what was happening elsewhere it is offensive it really is offensive and the clip we, we should go back to allegra stratton i guess what was your response? What was your immediate reaction to the Allegra Stratton video? Of So, of course, the timeline of events, day one of the crisis for the government, there was a story broke about how there was a party in Downing Street amongst the staff there. And the original response from the government was to say that they had no knowledge of this party happening. And then kind of that argument evolved into the line that we've all become very familiar with now. The argument was, well... The Prime Minister Boris Johnson is is assured that no um, rule breaking occurred at these not parties, whatever they were. Um, so that was day that was step one of the crisis. Step two of the crisis, you had the Allegra Stratton video. I'm sure you know what the Allegra Stratton video is, but if you don't, it was a video of Allegra Stratton, who was at the time kind of the personal spokes spokesperson for the Prime Minister. Um, joking about said party that did or didn't happen so at that stage in the crisis act what was your response to that video oh it was basically the, they're busted that it's just very coincidental that the day after I think it was, the actual um brief that the, the practice briefing was just after the christmas party and the person that was asking electoral stratton was one of the pm's advisors david oldfield and it, I remember thinking, well, I don't know how they're going to talk themselves out of this one because that's a very preemptive question. And, you know, in everyone's minds, and this is what's cut through, it's not about the rehearsal. It's the fact that why would you want to make up a scenario that sounds very similar to what's just broken? I just thought it was a disgustingly bad bit of PR, I think, from them. It was really bad optics that you're joking about. How do you blag a Christmas party without, you know, annoying anyone and spinning it, spinning it to the public and the press? And immediately I thought, well, she's going to have to go. I think everyone in that room really should have to go. But again, it kind of speaks volumes at how Boris Johnson kind of paid tribute to Allegra Stratton and everyone in that room about it. And to say, again, it's that, it's that drip feed, isn't it, of saying, well, I'm outraged that people had broken the rules and i wasn't even at downing street when this happened this kind of thing and then of course the next chapter of this never-ending scandal dumped him right in it and yeah. it, 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 just to add on there the, the thing is about this scandal it was it was so unavoidable as is virtually every scandal in the johnson administration that all you have to do is tell the truth i think 
as much as we may not like the fact that Boris Johnson is very much all things to all people, people give him the benefit of the doubt, rightly or wrongly. I think if he did come out immediately and say, yes, there's a party, I'm really, really sorry. Uh, you know, obviously it would never happen again. I think people would have, you know, obviously they'd have been annoyed. I think they would still have had in the poll, but eventually, by by now, I think people have just forgotten about it. Like, well, you know, it's last year, let's go over it. You know, Boris is doing this, this and this, let's move on. But because, I think, again, we said this all the time, that Boris Johnson has a very tenuous relationship with the truth. He doesn't believe that neither the rules or truth matters to him and he can get away with anything. He can blag his way out of it. I think he genuinely believed that this would blow over. Nothing would emerge that would incriminate him. And, you know, it's that, you know, using Mr. Blag. And it's just scandal after scandal that could totally be prevented. And it's also a condemnation of his advisors, because if I was his advisor, I would be saying, just admit it. You'd, you'd look a lot better at that if you admitted it than if you keep letting this story run. And I do assume I think there's a lot more ground to cover in this scandal. I don't think it's over by any stretch. Yeah, let me pick up on... Um... <laughs> I, I can't remember word for word what you said, Zach. Your comment about the Prime Minister being or having a loose relationship with the truth, what did you say about that? Oh, essentially that, you know, he's never... He genuinely believes, I think, that he can get away with anything and it doesn't really matter if he tells the truth or not because he doesn't get any consequences from it and that people will just take his word for it because he's Boris Johnson and, you know, scruffy hair, zip wire man, that kind of thing doesn't really matter really but again it, it's caught up with him i think that there's only so many lies you can tell and then eventually it's all going to come crashing down and i think it's starting to come crashing down for him it's ironic that no party or opposition party has gone with or the party's over isn't it i'm assuming that will be rolled out the next by-election that's coming this week but yeah his relationship with the truth has always been quite tenuous it's not anything new uh, and I think we said this last week that I think it was Laura Koonsberg saying that the public are kind of priced in with this kind of rampant dishonesty, which is a very lazy point to make if you're the BBC political editor, because there's only so much that the public will take. And I think it just speaks to a wider issue that, you know, you can't trust this bloke at all. Virtually everything that comes out of his mouth is a bit of a lie. Of some sort. Sure. So the, the I just wanted to quote you, and I, basically what I was going to say in reply was I'm I'm going to go one step further than your tenuous relationship with the truth comment um, by saying that the prime minister is a habitual liar. I just I don't see any other explanation for this. Like I, I just don't. I, I don't see an alternative theory. Like. When he was 24, so this is in 1988, Boris Johnson was sacked from the Times for fabricating a quote in an article. In 2004, he was relieved of his duties as a shadow arts minister by the Tory party after allegedly lying about an extramarital affair. This guy, in his professional life at least, is a habitual liar. And I don't know Boris Johnson personally, but from what I've read, he doesn't seem to be particularly honest in his personal life either. So let's look at this, draw, go back from this in itself, the crisis in itself in, in government. 
and look at this from a broader picture. We're in a public health emergency. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, what is the most important quality that a prime minister should have? Uh, trust and leadership. And, and I think they both go hand in hand. That a good leader is someone you can trust. And the reason why I think it's particularly important, obviously, it's important that people, it's important that voters, it's important that citizens, whoever, it's important for people that they're able to trust their politicians. Because ultimately, the politicians who run the country, the politicians are the people who run the country. You need to be able to trust your leaders. That's a fairly fundamental principle of public life and politics in, in general and democracy, quite frankly. It's important in any time that you need that you can trust your 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 politicians. But bear in mind last week, Zach, we spoke for 10, 15 minutes, probably not like probably probably closer to five minutes to be honest, about about people being radicalized online about COVID conspiracies. Like the online kind of extremification of people with regards to coronavirus policy. And it's easy to understand. I'm obviously not condoning conspiracy theories regarding the coronavirus, don't get me wrong. But it's easy to see how people could be pulled into that world because they look at the prime minister and say, this guy's a barefaced liar. Mm, and that is so damaging. That's like... Yeah, um, just to say, uh, Keir Sarr was on Mars today. I think he got it spot on that the longer Boris Johnson is in post with all these scandals, he's a danger to public health because, again, you know, these COVID conspiracists, as mental as they are and sound, there's going to be sympathy towards them because if the Prime Minister, you know, the bastion of all these rules, is lying every single time, kind of throwing red meat to these conspiracists that, you know, why should they believe everyone else when, you know, the, the status quo, as it were, turns out to be lying after lying after lying. It's such a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, before we push on, I normally say this at the top of the show, but we've been, we've been into this and we've been going fairly quickly and we've kind of thrown procedure out the window, um, which if, the form, if Formula One has taught me anything, you should never throw procedure out of the window. Zach, well, I have no idea what I'm referencing, but hopefully <laughs> some of our listeners do. Um, I should say, we're recording this podcast at, well, the time currently is two minutes past five on Sunday, the 12th of December. This is relevant because while we've been speaking, a couple of things have broken in the news. So the first one, just to give you context of when we're recording this, is that the coronavirus threat level in the UK has gone up from three to four. So you remember last year we had that kind of Nando's style chiliometer coronavirus threatometer thing. You that, some of you remember um that was a thing we've now gone up another level so it's worse than than was thought allegedly or according to the government um the other thing that's happened while we are on the call zach and you've just sent this to me is that the prime minister will tonight at 8 p.m give an address to the to the public on on presumably the bbc itv etc um so that to, just to put into context the discussion that we're having. So that obviously hasn't happened yet. Have you, have you got your red button ready? It might be an interactive quiz. Yeah, I did. I did Zach tweeted that. It did make me <laughs> chuckle. Um, so, yeah, just for the listeners, this is when we're recording the podcast, just so you know. So we've kind of covered the early part of, of the controversy. We've covered Stratton. We've covered the early denials. Um, before we move on and before we start talking about the stuff that's just broken, 
Um, what did you make of Sakia Starmer's performance at Prime Minister's Questions on, on Wednesday? Personally, I thought we did pretty well. I, I think he's had a really good week. Um, I think a lot of people, I think this definitely applies to everyone on Twitter, they want him to, Boris Johnson, to resign and, and all of that and so forth. I think he's had a good week. I think he's played it fairly down the middle. It's very Starmer isn't it that you know he's not gone to the extreme of wanting to resign but he's not gone to the extreme of you know basically saying we'll vote with you for everything and he's kind of got it right the critique i think cuts through and that's what he's doing isn't it you know saying that's in the truth you know how can you still stand there and act as if you're credible when everything's happening around you i think he performed really well at prime minister's questions he performed really well this week uh, and I, I just referenced, you know, today he was on Andrew Marr saying that Labour were going to back the Plan B restrictions and, and Plan B, whatever it is now. Um, he's played it quite well, essentially saying that we're putting the public the party. It would, of course, be quite handy to give the government a really bad defeat. And I think if Johnson was to lose the Plan B vote, I think he'd be in very serious trouble. But he's just, I think it's the arse of opposition, isn't it, in action, that you can get a lot out of the government without doing much. I think that's what Starmer's done this week. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Starmer's done fine. I think, actually, the final final topic that we'll talk about with regards to what happened on Wednesday and kind of the early form of of the party crisis is um, the line that Boris Johnson used a couple of times in PMQs. So I live-tweeted PMQs, by the way. So if, if you don't follow me, follow me at LukeJames underscore 32. I retweeted it onto the Midfield Politics account as well. Um, one of the quotes, one of the defences that kept coming up from the Prime Minister was to accuse Labour, um, Keir Starmer in particular, and later on in PMQs, also Ian Blackford of, of the SNP, that they were playing politics and that the British public didn't want people to be playing politics. They wanted politicians to be looking after the things that are important to the British public, i.e. the booster rollout was one example. What did you make of that line? The line that the opposition <coughs> parties are just playing politics. And to, to skip forward for events a little bit as well, Nadim Sahari used the same line this morning on, on the Andrew Marr show, saying that, well, opposition parties are kind of just using all of this to to play politics at a time of, of genuine health crisis. He said that in relation to the fact that Starmer wasn't playing politics by voting for the restrictions that, that or voting for Plan B this week. So, Zach, what did you make of that line? I think it's absolutely lazy and desperate and hypocritical, isn't it, that Boris Johnson moans about how no one's speaking about the booster vaccine programme, yet when... Uh, I think it was the day after the Allegra Stratton video emerged, ministers had the opportunity to go on to breakfast, to Good Morning Britain, to Sky News, and they em- they got they empty chaired themselves. So this idea that coverage has only been about uh, the scandal is kind of, again, it's the Tories' own making. And it's, it's this habitual thing with the Conservative Party. They don't want to take accountability for what they do, you know. And... I don't think it's playing politics to hold the government to account. You know, people want answers. People are really angry about this. It's not playing politics at all. It's basically good government to hold the government to account. And if they don't want to be held to account, then, you know, 
Kells agrees, people are going to use this as a party political point and good on them. Um, I think it's just been very lazy from the government to effectively talk about the booster programme. It's been stalling. Starmer referenced this on Mars that Labour have been calling for boosting the booster vaccine programme. Intakes being comparatively low to other countries. You've not really seen much from the Tories and the government on the booster programme. I think that will obviously be ramped up in the next few weeks. But yeah, I, did, I didn't like the whole it's playing politics thing because they're all politicians. I think we either we've said this off air or we've said this in the previous episode before that that's like saying to a lawyer, well, you're playing by trying to be a lawyer. Well, hey, presto, a politician will be inevitably be playing politics with whatever they do. I, I think it was a really bizarre comment and I think it just shows they're really rattled from this affair. I think... Just to just to add one thing to that, I think it's quite an assiduous form, quite an assiduous display of Boris Johnson's populism. Because when a politician or politicians in this case, because obviously we have the education secretary using the same line this morning, um, when politicians say this, that, oh, they're just playing politics, what they're actually kind of leaning on is the argument that's already kind of well formulated in lots of voters' minds, that all politicians are the same. And they're playing off the negative reputation that politicians have, essentially. Dirty word. And by saying, oh, Labour are playing politics, we're not playing politics, but Labour are playing politics. It's just further... Politicians. And again, at a time when there's a genuine public health crisis, which has got worse today, or is rated officially within government is not a good thing to be doing it's just and this is why i hate it when people say things like all politicians are the same i think the events of the last week suggest that they might not all be the same surely no i agree yeah and uh, yeah i just thought i'd bring that up because i i really dislike really really dislike the all oh, their playing politics because of course they're playing politics it's their job you're a politician it's their constitutional role as well it's this strong oppositions after uh, equal strong governments in normal times but again it's it, that's that's become a a bit of a, a cliche isn't it we're not in normal times are we? i don't think we've been in normal times in the past five or six years but this idea that you know, by by not playing politics, you're doing the right thing. No, you're not. You know, if you're not playing politics, then why it's the game we're in? Why why are you in politics? You know, of course there 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 is a line of argument saying yes, we should be looking at the, praising the government for the vaccination program. Of course we should, but we should, that that in itself is a party political point, isn't it? Because you saw immediately right at the start of the vaccine rollout program. The government was saying this was a, a conservative success. It wasn't a national it was a conservative success. And then you saw the vaccine balance. So this idea that, again, you have to live by the sword and die by the sword. Inevitably, when the programme stalled, and it has stalled for whatever reason, I, I wouldn't exactly blame the government for it stalling so much, but still there is a bit of culpability there. People will turn it around and say, well, you've claimed success of this project, you now have to claim the the misgivings, the failures coming to this project as well, because that's being political about it, is it not? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, Zach, we should move on from what actually final thing. A lot of stuff happened on Wednesday, didn't it? Um, final thing to mention. Where we would we would have killed a few weeks ago to have this kind of thing where all of a sudden, we, yeah, we were scraping the barrel a few weeks ago, thinking, what's actually happened this week that, that's that's important? And it's all of this this week. Just it's been full of politics, isn't it? Yeah, and as you can tell by the excitement in Zach and us. In, in our in our voices today, we we like politics, um, which is it is sad in a way, isn't it? Because as a politics nerd, I found this week very exciting, in the sense of and as a politics nerd and as a journalism student, I found it all very exciting. I find stuff like this is exciting, like the, the scoops that these journalists are getting and the way it's coming out in public and the way that the politicians are responding. I find it a fascinating and b inspiring in a way i guess um but i think i personally have been decent decent i'm not as sensitive to the to the absolute nonsense i always use nonsense as bs um (laughs) if you're wondering why i say nonsense a lot (laughs) the nonsense that's that's happened this week like i i I felt really angry at some of the stories that have come out this week. And my response when Saxons them to me on DM is just to kind of say, <laughs> is to laugh, essentially, because it's... Um, I'm aware that kind of this is really, really serious, what we're talking about. But there is an element of, if you don't laugh at... There's an element of, you'll be really angry. A, you'll be really angry, or B, you'll be crying because it is upsetting. It is is really, really bad. So bear that in mind, when, when we do sound like this, it is because we care and we're fascinated by the politics of it all, and we talk about policy loads as well. Um, the thing I was going to add before Zach, you jumped in this week, and again, you can get you right, was just to say that, of course, that wasn't where Wednesday ended. We also had the press conference. And I think the remark even when when it was announced that we'd be moving to plan b um was that the prime minister would be in a queue members of members of the media pool that he was using coronavirus restrictions as a dead cat uh, let's think about it imagine we're not in a pandemic okay imagine imagine the past two years hadn't happened imagine how good that would have been anyway Imagine in a normal world, in a pre-pandemic world, the Prime Minister announces a a ban on the consumption of milk because there's a story in the in one of the papers that he's had an affair with someone. Could you imagine? Like or, or well, there's a story that, there's that's a, probably that's probably realistic as well. There's there's a story in one of the newspapers. Yeah, or or there's a story in one of the newspapers that his staff have been caught speeding. So he's so he's banned milk to distract people from from the story. Like number one, I I I don't buy the argument that the restrictions are are a dead cat because I don't think if they were a dead cat, I don't think Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance would have been on the stage with him advocating for them. Mm. Maybe I'm naive to that. I don't. I, I personally don't think so. I don't think Boris Johnson would would use that as a dead cat because. It's fundamentally unpopular. And as we've said time and time and time again, this is a guy who loves to be loved. So no, I don't think Plan B is a is a dead cat. But the fact that he was being accused of such, I think speaks to how 
Yeah, it speaks to how low he has sunk in terms of the eyes of of the press and I guess to an extent the public as well, because it seems plausible. Like I, it's not what I think, but I don't look at it as a theory and go, no, that's completely ridiculous, which is really damaging. Hmm. Especially, it was the way in which uh, we've we've kind of spoken about it in in passing about the Plan B, what's actually in Plan B. It's very poorly constructed, and you've had very conservative, sympathetic publications essentially rip the rules apart within hours. And then, of course, people go to say, well, that's why he did it. It was, you know, from Flint's rules to try to detract from a really big story. The fact that it was on the six o'clock news was kind of this desperate attempt to get rid of the, the main story. It didn't work anyway because they ran with the main story and then went to the conference. It's just been such a bad week of government choreography, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been really poor. And I think on that note, we should move on past Wednesday, finally. Um, has anything? Did anything major happen between um, the stuff on Wednesday, the stuff earlier this week, and the stuff that happened last night about the Prime Minister's quiz? Uh, I think all because... in, in between has been essentially the discussion about who's going to vote against Plan B, and it's, it's come out now, there's up to 60. I think our MP doesn't want to vote for it, surprise, surprise. Um, there's about 60-odd Tory rebels ahead of next week's really big Plan B vote. Sure. Um, and the only other thing that has happened, and it's kind of been lost in the headlines, is that other ministerial departments have been accused of, of doing the same things with regards to Christmas parties. So there was a story about Rishi Sunak's department, there was a story about Theresa coffee's department for example there were there were numerous ministers who have been caught up in this but of course they are not the headline they're not the main story <clears throat> this week which i think is very lucky for rishi sunak for example because of, of what he might be setting himself up for in the future but i'll leave that thought hanging there um so i guess we move on now and we talk about the latest stuff the the christmas party the the christmas quiz at Downing Street that includes the Prime Minister and not only includes the Prime Minister but features photographic evidence of the Prime Minister's attendance. Um, Zach, I think the best place to start is with kind of an explanation of the, the whole story in the mirror today. So could you run the listeners through what this party is supposed to have been and when it happened and stuff like that? So essentially, it was back last year, again, this party after party at Downing Street. It was allegedly held virtually, but number 10 staffers decided to come into number 10 anyway. Uh, so they were huddled around laptops. There was a lot of drinking going on. Someone told the mirror very candidly and said, of course, this was not work or business. It was a, it's simply a social event because we wanted to socialise. And Boris Johnson hosts one round of this quiz for about 10 to 15 minutes with two other people in the room breaking social distancing. And it kind of runs a coach and horses through this defence that he's been trying to hold all week that, A, weirdly, he didn't know that any parties were going on in his own residence. B, that all guidelines were always being followed in whatever events, fictitious or not, had happened in Downing Street. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's such a weird, it's a weird, fa- it's, it's just a very incriminating photo just simply because it's this idea that, well, he must have known what was going on in his own place. And 
it puts him in a very difficult position because if he says that, oh, I didn't know what was going on, there's a course to argue that if Boris Johnson doesn't know what's going on in number 10, isn't that extremely worrying because he's the prime minister? Or, you know, if he jumps to the other side, it turns out he's misled the house, he's misled the public, and that puts him in really big hot water. And if he has misled the house, it is the norm that you would resign as a minister. Exactly. And obviously as prime minister, as that is his ministerial position. Um, Zach, while we've been talking, um, another update. I, I don't want to dwell on this because this press conference, not a press conference, would have happened by the time the listeners probably are, are listening to the podcast. But this tweeted three minutes ago by Lewis Goodall, who is a brilliant journalist at the BBC. He's head of policy, I believe. Um, so this is mainly for, for your ears, Zach, and then we'll react as follows. But the Prime Minister to address the nation at 8pm this evening. No new restrictions, it's understood, but instead focus on the booster programme. And it's a it's an address, not a press conference stroke down in street briefing. So that means there are no questions from journalists and that is also not a briefing from Witty or Valance. The address also is pre-recorded and is not being broadcast live. Um, and Lewis Goodall adds, addresses to the country in this form have been rare. Generally, they've been used only around lockdowns. But as I say, <coughs> that isn't what's happening here. So bearing in mind everything that's been going on this week, what is your response to the fact that the Prime Minister is... He's doing a pre-recorded, non-press-accessed address to the nation. Uh, you know, when we were saying about dead cats, it appears that this dead cat's been let out of the bag. I mean... Well, if if the Prime Minister isn't actually announcing anything, really, because it, by, the, by the sounds of it, and of course, it's a little bit silly to talk about this for, for much because it's going to have happened before people hear the podcast. But if all that's going to happen at this point announcement is the pro is boris johnson is going to say please get your booster that's that's not he could have tweeted that surely it's not going to endear him i think to the public i remember i can't remember it was around this it not around this time last year i think it's around the summer right before the end of lockdown he had a similar statement and it went down like a cup of cold sick because everyone left that kind of address thinking well first of all he does he sounds like he doesn't know what he's on about and second of all, what was the point of it? It's the same thing here, because half of us can't get the booster jab yet. So if, I think for our age group, we're not going to be able to get it until around mid-January. And it, it, it's a very... I think I saw it in the mail last night that Boris Johnson was angry at the BBC, apparently. He was angry at the BBC for rolling with Partygate all week, although it was ITV that had the footage. But anyway... Part of his chief central concern was no one's talking about the booster programme. And it just seemed, it, again, it's very assiduous, isn't it, that all of a sudden, mired in allegations of sleaze, mired in a really existential crisis, he's going to talk to the country about booster vaccines. I think I feel like this is a dead cat. It's this idea of, you know, crisis, what crisis? Everything's OK here at Downing Street, it, it, but you have to get your vaccine because obviously you're not helping us by not getting it. It just seems a bit pointless, doesn't it? That it'll be about five minutes. It'll talk about how bad Omicron is. And of course, we need to know that. Of course, it's important to know that because it is a serious threat. We don't know enough yet of this variant. But at the same time, like, like you just said, he could easily tweet it or it could be, you know, 
have a bit of a splash in each of the newspapers or something. It just seems a waste of time. And to fill people in on on what the NHS is currently saying about the booster rollout. So at the time of recording, this is currently the policy. So booster vaccine doses will be available on the NHS for people most at risk from COVID-19 who have had a second dose of a vaccine at least three months ago. That three months has been shortened. It used to be a longer period of time. Now, this includes people aged 40 and over, people who live and work in care homes, frontline health and social care workers, people aged over 16 with a health condition that puts them at high risk of getting seriously ill from COVID-19, people aged 16 and over who are a main carer for someone at high risk from COVID-19, and people aged 16 and over who live with someone who is more likely to get infections, um, such as someone who has HIV, has had a transplant, so on and so forth. Um, just to add on at the end, pregnant uh, people who are pregnant and in one of the eligible groups can also get a booster dose. So they're the people that are currently eligible. But there was, there's been talk locally and in different parts of the country that under 40s would be able to get boosters this week, but that hasn't quite come through. I think it's all been a bit confusing, hasn't it? And I, every time Boris Johnson has made an address like this, the confusion has increased. And this is where I do sympathise with a lot of Tories in the party that say he does need to get a grip. He needs people around him that are actually quite competent. Because however, whatever you think of the Downing Street operation, it does seem that every time he's allowed in public to talk about this virus, people come away none the wiser. And again, I think the same thing will happen tonight. He will say something that's quite obvious about, well, you know, get your booster if you if you've been told to. It's a bit, of course, you know, if people had two jabs already, it, it, they're going to get the third one. It's not as if people, you know, cash out after two jabs thinking that's it. It's just, it just seems to me quite desperate from him. It really does. And I think now we've had a little bit of a detour into an announcement that's going to happen before people hear the podcast. Um, we'll go back to the subject matter at hand. So the story about Boris Johnson's Christmas shenanigans, we'll call it. Um, one of the arguments that I've seen banded about by Tory backbenchers who are still somehow supporting the Prime Minister is that um, like the people were were working really hard they were at work because they were working on issues of kind of public health interest they had to be there um it kind of slightly undermines the message though that this was a very serious event when two of the people in the shot are either a wearing tinsel or b have a santa hat it's our tory mps and the government itself trying to defend the indefensible here or is there an argument that you could get out, out of because the, the other argument that I've seen banned about on Twitter is that this is something that's happened online but of course that is not what's included, included in, in the report itself. It's also important to note as well that obviously social distancing measures were still in place at this time so even though like there wasn't correct me if I'm wrong that but there wasn't like penalties for breaking social distancing like if you got within two metres of someone it wasn't necessarily like a, a criminal offence but it was still part of the rules of the time mm. and remember going back back in time a year 
the controversies in that we're talking about were things like politician A is standing too close to politician B. Like people were posting pictures of, of them out and about, and if they were within two meters of each other last last summer, like people would flip because that was against the rules. So not only is there an alleged illegal Christmas party going on, Christmas quiz, whatever. He's also breaking, he being the Prime Minister, he's also breaking social distancing rules because he's sat within two metres of two people. Hmm. I think that's an under-discussed part of this story because it just it's another layer, isn't it? It's just like, well, as you say, Zach, as you said earlier in the show, the Prime Minister doesn't seem to think that the rules apply to him. And maybe they don't. It's a habit. Maybe they haven't his whole life. Mm. Maybe they haven't. Maybe he's just always got what he wanted. But I, I don't think that is an acceptable way of being a prime minister. Which is why I, I don't want him to resign. Actually, I'm going to take a really surprising view. So, because that would be the easy way out for someone like Johnson. That just because he's got his hands caught in the till, he should go. It's. He's, this is a man who has never really faced consequences for anything he's done in his public and private life. Even when he was sacked at James, he still went into another job. It wasn't as if his career was over. Whereas for a normal person, say like us, say, you know, one of, you know, we ended up lying in a newspaper, we would be, you know, our careers would be over. You know, we would never be in that profession ever again. And no one would trust us with it as much as they can throw us. Yet with someone like Johnson, he can throw away the rules, get what he wants, when he wants and how he wants it. That's why I think it, it would just be too easy for him to just, you know, resign and, and brush his hands a bit. I think, again, this is why I'm praising Labour for essentially saying, we're not going to call for him to resign. We, we've just got to essentially let him stew on it. And I think you said it at the top of the part about Tory backbenchers try to defend it by saying it's a virtual quiz. I think, again, it's this death by a thousand cuts that as soon as they leap to that defence, it shows they've not read the entire article, hasn't it? That it's essentially the whole party broke the rules anyway and it shoots down this defence that Boris Johnson didn't know what was going on. I think, again, if he was to use that defence again, I think people would then just see him as quite stupid and incompetent, which would be horrendous optics for him. And I, I, I honestly think, I think there's more to come. And it was very uh, almost um, prophetic that Dominic Cummings two days ago said, believe me, there will be pictures from this party that will emerge. And all of a sudden you had the mirror lead with that. And then the Sunday Times saying there's several videos and pictures that will emerge from this. I think the longer the Downing Street operation and Boris Johnson tried to deny this or tried to spin it, I think you're just going to get a drip feed of more guest lists and pictures that will emerge. And it's it's ultimately one of those stories that won't go away. And it won't go away until Boris Johnson tells the truth. And again, I think even if he was to say, look, yes, I'm really sorry, I still don't think people will trust him. I, I think he's past that point. You speak to an average person on the street, as we saw in a lot of Vox Pops over the past couple of days. And you've got lifelong Tory voters essentially saying, look, I'm not going to vote Labour, but I'm certainly never going to vote Conservative while this person's in charge. People are genuinely angry. And for a Tory MP to go to the kind of the, the what me gov defence of, well, it was a vote expect. It shows how desperately out of touch, I think, with the public they are. And it's really damaging to the party. 
And let's let's not forget as well, there was an exclusive <laughs> in the sun that dropped about 15 minutes after the mirror that basically the, the premise of the report was Boris Johnson had been seen in a restaurant after 10 p.m. Remember this. Can you can you imagine <laughs> that what a year ago or just over a year ago now there were rules in place that forced hospitality venues to shut before 10 p.m. It's been a wild year, hasn't it? Like when you think about some of the some of the rules and and and, and things that have been put in. But anyway, I, I'm going on the tangent again. I need to stop. Um, so there was a report where Boris Johnson was breaking the 10 p.m. curfew by staying in the restaurant beyond then. Um, there was also an indication that he was mixing with other customers that weren't in his bubble. So like that story hasn't hasn't seen much much daylight today, understandably, but it's it's not looking good for the prime minister. And I think one of the one of the final things I've I've got to say for now is it looks like somebody I don't know who, but it looks like somebody has decided that now is the time he needs to go. Mm. By the way, all all these things are being leaked. Yeah, considering it was a year ago, that's my chief kind of grievance with this whole saga is why has it taken an entire year for this to emerge something must be at play that's not me putting a tin hat on that's not you putting a tin hat on it's it's asking a valid question of how has it been left to fester this long and you have to ask something must have happened in government for this to be leaked and ever since boris johnson tries to throw his own officials under the bus at pmqs the story has escalated again it's bad politics from here i don't know who's advising him to say should that be a really good idea just throw the people that were at the party under the bus um despite you having knowledge of everything that's happened because what what could go wrong i mean it's just horrendous politics from him and it, it's this classic thing of boris johnson has always wanted to be prime minister but now he is prime minister. He's seeing that it's not enough just to want to become prime. You have to be prime minister. And this is someone who genuinely isn't good at their job because he's got no interest in it. He's, you know, he's got the name on the golden letters on the wall. He's got his portrait in Downing Street. But it's more than that. He has to take responsibility. He has to do things for the good of the country, not himself. And he said it himself. He's on really bad pay, according to him compared to everyone else you know he's only on 160 grand a year whereas you know, if he wrote his Shakespeare book and had his annual like, column in the Telegraph he'd be on a lot more money I mean it just speaks so much about him this past week it's it's actually fascinating yeah yeah um wow I just it's a difficult one isn't it this whole thing and where does Boris Johnson go from here? Um, because the polling, the polling, it looks absolutely horrendous. And the thing is, with the re- I'd say there's been three major scandals since. Obviously, there's a lot more, but as in three that have had some sort of resonance in the public. Like Barnard Castle, where the Tories are on the high forties. Barnard Castle happens; they take a dip. Uh, the next one, I think, is the Patterson affair. They go from just in the 40s, relatively healthy leader, but into the mid-30s. And since this has come about, and it's very early, they may very well recover, they're now down into the, the low 30s. I mean, it's permanent damage of some sort. I'm not saying that, you know, Labour are going to get in because of this, but 
it's this idea that this Tory coalition of voters is very fragile and people just don't want to vote for Johnson. They don't really, they're not really impressed by Labour, so they just won't turn up. And all of a sudden, that Tory base that really did get all of the seats that they needed at the last general elections, get this super majority, fades away. And I, I think it's, it's permanent damage on the Tory party and it puts them in a really bad position because do they get rid of Johnson or do they gamble on the public being a bit bit forgiving of him in two or three years' time? And who knows what could happen in those two or three years? It might be he ends up being... Like to the Thatcher, you know, they might we might end up in a war with you uh, with Russia. We do really well. He's in with a landslide, or inevitably there'll be more scandals and lies and broken promises with this government, and people will take their anger out not on the Tories but on Johnson, and that might sink them. We just don't know. The issue that you have as well, if we're talking big picture about the prime minister's role. And I've said that I've said this months ago that I don't think Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister before for the reasons that you've just said, Zach. Like he has, there was a story months and months ago. I can't remember which newspaper because it was a long time ago, where Boris Johnson had reportedly said to people in his inner circle that part of the reason why he didn't want to be, uh, why he wanted to make more money was because of like he has to pay for to look after his kids. <laughs> um. How many? Um, well, the, I I don't know if. So I, while you were talking about his pay, the, the story popped into my head. So I googled how many kids does Boris Johnson have. The answer is seven, according to to MSN. Um, which is fine. Whatever floats your boat. I'm not here to judge how many kids people have. I don't really mm-hmm. care. Um, but you make a really good point about the fact that Boris Johnson is on a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. And the other important thing to remember as well is as soon as you stop being Prime Minister, you make even more money. Yeah, Theresa May on the after-dinner circuits is raking it in. And Theresa May left office because, partly because she was branded the main bot because people didn't think she had any charisma. And all, of, all of a sudden, since she's left office, it's like she's <laughs> the the real Theresa May's come out. I mean, I don't know if you saw the um, the joke at the spectators. It was actually quite funny. It's like, where was this Theresa May? But it's this idea, like you say, that it's you can make a lot of money when you leave Downing Street. And Dominic Cummings said the same thing about, well, it's obvious that he doesn't want to be there that long. He will leave because he wants he wants more money. He he needs to fund his lifestyle. Again, it's another scandal. I think it's, it's actually, we've not spoken about this yet, about the wallpaper scandal. I mean, of all the things as well. This idea that it's a very expensive lifestyle that he wants to live. And I think deep down, he knows that he can't fund it with just being the prime minister. That just sounds really egregious in itself, but that is his thinking. Is the, the wallpaper completely slipped my mind as well? Is the wallpaper the worst part of this? I think it might be because the whole way through the, the the whole way through the wallpaper story, and of course this has been trundling along for months. Boris Johnson reportedly had nothing to do with it, and yet it has now emerged that Boris Johnson exchanged WhatsApps with the the Tory donor who uh, who eventually paid for the for the wallpaper. 
Um, so it's the fact that he's misled his own he's misled right. Parliament, and his own standards as well. Is that I think it was Tom Bradley who said, "Well, if Lord Guy goes, basically Boris Johnson's standards official, you know all that jazz. If he was to go, then there's a real case of Boris Johnson having to go because." What look is it that if your own standards advisor turns around and says, well, I think you're a bit of a liar, so I'm going to have to resign, it's incredible damage on him. It's one of those, at the time, we, I think we both admitted this is probably a Westminster bubble story. No one really cares about wallpaper. But again, it's the, the art of the current scandal about Christmas that we say that it's quite, it sounds really trivial. It's just about Christmas party. But it's about trust. It's about leadership. It's about integrity. This has now popped up right in the middle of this big Christmas party scandal. And it all plays into this narrative that Boris Johnson can't tell the truth to save his life. And it is inflicting so much damage both in his party, to the public, to everyone around him. It's beginning to corner him quite a bit. In a way, I think the Christmas party stories are a bit silly. In a way. Because in the sense they're a little bit frivolous. Like, it's obviously really bad that they broke the rules. Totally not defending them for that. But at the end of the day, lots of people probably broke the rules. Happened a year ago, blah, 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 let's get on with it. I can see why some people might think like that. That's not, that's not my view. But what I'm saying is, is, is the whole scandal about this isn't, isn't that serious. If you, if you pull back, like, it's not a matter of national security. It's not a matter of corruption it's a matter of being morally corrupt <laughs> completely 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 but it's not a matter of the prime minister is really dodgy or the prime minister's inner circle is really dodgy it's like a different kind of crisis if you, you, you do you get what i mean yeah 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 whereas the wallpaper stuff which again sounds completely ludicrous i think is a little bit more serious and i think it speaks to the genuine kind of pay-for-play corruption that is actually an issue in British politics in the sense that you have Tory donors paying for the Prime Minister's personal renovations. Like, that is that, I think, democratically, politically, is a bigger, broader, more wide-scale problem, a more serious problem than the stuff that's going on with, with the Christmas parties. Because it speaks to how easily corruptible the Prime Minister might be. And if we're already having a discussion about his morals, we're already having a discussion about his ethics, we're already having a discussion about whether or not the Prime Minister is a habitual liar, and most people I speak to tend to think that he is, including Conservative voters, um, I think the, the idea that he's, he's easy to corrupt is an issue, surely. Exactly. I mean, we've seen what happens when... Voters don't trust the Prime Minister. Their, their personal ratings go down the toilet. I mean, you know, Tony Blair was always called Tony Blyer after Iraq. Oh, OK, he still won the 2005 election. But the point is, it was kind of the death knell for his prime ministership when it it came out that things weren't as what was said. And albeit there's been loads of inquiries since that has suggested he didn't lie. But it's this point, it's public perception. And once you've got that public perception that the Prime Minister's a liar, it, it, they may very well be telling the truth about certain things, but your kind of habitual thing is to say, well, hang on a minute, he's probably lying because he's lying about this. It's gold dust to opposition parties because they can just keep saying, well, he's lied about this, he's lied about this. How can you possibly trust him 
on this. And that's why it, it, it provides a real dilemma for the Conservative Party ahead of the next general election, because if Johnson is this electoral asset that they think he is, and that he can get through this crisis and get through whatever comes between now and 2024, then great for him. But on the same side of the coin, if people don't trust him, they, they, they just won't turn up to vote for him. It, it won't be that they'll go straight to Labour. They might just not turn up. And we know that the Tories do rely a lot more than Labour on on the day voting, getting the vote out. And if people aren't going to turn up, that poses a real electoral problem for the Conservative Party. Zach, do you have anything else to say on Christmas Party Gate or Wallpaper Gate? Uh, I just find it quite ironic that they've cancelled this year's Housing Street Party. I won't lie. But I did say I'm going to the Downing Street rave on Facebook on the, I believe, is it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Christmas Eve rave, I believe. Well, I'm definitely having pre-drinks as well. So, you know, that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Are uh, you going? Um, no, I'm not I'm not much of a raver, um, as, as you'll be well aware of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the only, um, and again, I'm going to lower the tone of, of the podcast. Um <laughs> But we often lower the tone of the podcast and go a little bit silly at times. So so we'll go there anyway. Final comment from me on the wallpaper and the Christmas parties is I'm going to try not to swear because I don't want to have to mark the episode as, as explicit. <laughs> have you seen how jolly disgusting the wallpaper is? Yes. Have, like, can you... Oldie. I, I don't see how it costs 50, 50 or £1,000. I can't lie. You could probably get a decent rollout of Wilco for... <laughs> It's, you know, it's, it's, a joke. I, I, I totally understand that it's personal taste and whatever but I've, I find it especially funny and this goes back to me again seeing things as funny that I probably shouldn't see as funny in politics um, it's especially funny that the Prime Minister is <laughs> has found himself in a massive semi-corruption scandal about who has paid for the worst wallpaper in the world I just find that a little bit amusing and I think it speaks of, of, of Boris Johnson's tastelessness in general um zach we have to finish the podcast relatively soon because i am eating dinner at six and we've got 15 minutes to go i wanted to finish the podcast by looking forward a little bit um of course there's a by-election this week on thursday in north shropshire this was owen patterson's seat of course that feels like an eternity it feels like an eternity ago that scandal blew up (laughs) Is that had Owen Patterson just served his suspension, and had the Tories not tried to change the rules on 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 um, P, um, MPs' ethics and and whatnot, his suspension would have finished a couple of days ago, and he would have been back working as an MP. But instead, they tried to fight it. They tried to change the rules, and now look where we are. It's quite something. But anyway, it's Owen Patterson's seat of Warsaw in Patterson seat. The Tories, this is a place where the Tories always win. And yet we are a matter of days away from the by-election. And Sir Ed Davies, plucky Liberal Democrats, <laughs> are they going to do it? Are they going to overturn? I'll, I'll get the numbers up for you in a second, Zach. But are, are the Liberal Democrats going to overturn this seat? Is it possible? Well, it's the kind of, well, if they can, there's nothing to suggest they can't. North Shropshire. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. There's a couple of people in the Labour camp. 
they're saying they're obviously in second. I think that opinion has changed over the past couple of days. The Liberal Democrats are very confident that they're going to win, simply because I think that they're now the bookies' favourites, and they're odds on to win in North Shropshire. Internal polling, according to the Guardian, has the Tories on 40% and the Liberal Democrats on 39 Now, if that's internal polling, of course we have to take internal polling with a lot, lot of pinches of salt. If it's that close, and with everything that's going on, I don't see anything else but a Liberal Democrat victory. And it will show that blue suburbia is in real, real danger for the Tories. I I will put my neck out on the line. I think it will be a very marginal Liberal Democrat gain, and that will be a huge, huge moment in Boris Johnson's premiership. So, let me caveat what I'm about to say by by adding a bit of detail. So, North Shropshire constituency has kind of existed on and off for a while, okay? So, existed from, like, 1830s through to 1885, and then came back in 1983, okay? I feel like you might see where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. But the last time North Shropshire itself, I, I, I can't tell you when the last time was the area itself was represented by anyone but a Conservative. The last time anyone who wasn't either a Tory, as in when it was the Tory party, or a Whig... <laughs> was 1835, 1834 rather, the last time this constituency was represented by someone who wasn't a Conservative. That is the scowl of the task at hand. It's also worth remembering that Owen Paterson has had this seat since 1997. So Paterson was elected in 1997. He replaced the Conservative incumbent, um, Paterson, in that election, won 40% of the vote. He won had a majority of 2,000. Since then, his majority has, has been pretty significant, to be completely honest. Um, like, in 2005, he had 23,000 votes to Labour's 12,000. In 2010, he had 26,000 to Liberal Democrats, 10,000. In 2015, he had 27,000 to Labour's 10,000. In 2017, he had 33,000 to Labour's 17,000. And most importantly, in 2019, <coughs> just two years ago, Owen Paterson, 35,444 votes compared to Labour's 12,495 votes and the Liberal Democrats' 5,643 votes. That's a big majority. Like, Paterson won 62.7% of the votes. Are we right in saying that this seat is just about as safe as Bexley was? But obviously, before like, uh, the other week's by election, it's, it's in that category of true blue Tory, Tory land. I can certainly get that up for you, but this is the thing, isn't it? It's a really, really big moment. The list of all the candidates. I'll run you through them now for the sake <laughs> of for the sake of impartiality. Um, there's an independent called Susie. Yukip Andrea Allen, rejoining you is the candidate is called <laughs> Boris. <laughs> Boris had been bunged. Um, Reclaim Party is represented by Martin Dubney. The Party Party is Russell Dean. 
<laughs> I'm not sure what party party is referencing because they when when they would have submitted the should, paper. should have called it Bunga Bunga, but that would be a whole new Yeah, party. you got the Heritage Party's James. The Reagan Unis have Alan Howling Loud Hope. The Freedom Alliance has Earl Jesse, um, an independent with no. Yolandi Kenwood. Then we have the Greens, Duncan Kerr, the Liberal Democrats, Helen Morgan, the Conservatives, Neil Shastri Hurst, Reform UK's Kirsty Wormsley, and Labour's Ben Wood. I think it's worth adding. I appreciate I've been talking for a while, but Helen Wood also stood in 2019. <coughs> so this is someone they know well. Um, the reports of the Conservative candidate, this is someone that has kind of been parachuted in from Birmingham, I believe. It's big, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. really, really big. I think they're going to lose. They being the Conservatives, I honest. Do you think it'll be a, a big majority for the? Liberal I don't think it'll be a big majority. I don't think it'll be small. I don't think they'll need to recount. If that's the question. Mm. Ha- I, I, let me just get up what the Cheshire and Amershire. I swear that the Liberal Democrats majority then became about five thousand. Uh, Cheshire and Amershire. If that was to happen, that would be a gigantic swing away from the Conservatives. That would strike for a lot of... For sure. Um, uh, and... Yeah, oh my, yeah, a majority of 8,000. Now that is... That was a swing of 25.2%. If that was happening in North Shropshire, I believe that the majority would roughly be around 5,000. That would be catastrophic for the Conservatives. And the other thing to remember, you mentioned Old Bexley and Sidcup, which is was, of course, James Brockenshire's constituency. Um, in the by-election there, the Conservative candidate lost 13% of the vote compared to what Brockenshire had in 2019. They still won comfortably. It was still 11,000 votes to 6,000 for Labour. Um, and that includes the Reform Party got just over 1,400 votes as well. So that kind of plays into plays into how close it was. Um it's it's dicey, isn't it, for the Tories? I th- I I think they'll lose. I honestly think they'll lose. It's um I was re I, I said this before we went on air, but um I was reading Telegraph as I totally do now these days um about about the by election and they compared it to the Eastbourne by election in nineteen ninety where very very safe Tory seat um right when Margaret Thatcher was having you know the poll tax everything was really starting to kick off. And the Conservatives lost Eastbourne. And this article is essentially saying that signalled the end. You know, it was the long death for Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister. And they're essentially saying, well, if this was to happen to Boris Johnson in North Shropshire, I think those jits have become real, real worries. I do, I agree with the, the article and essentially that if the Tories were to lose this seat, even I don't even think even a marginal win for the Tories would, would, would do him much good because it's such a huge substantial majority. And they can't just say, well, we've been in power for 11 years. As you said, they've had this seat, you know, for hundreds of years. It's not as if, you know, they're having midterm blues. I think if they lose this seat, it's going to be a huge crisis for them simply because of the majority. Zach, final question. For today, mm-hmm. how long has Boris Johnson got in office? <sighs> Part of me thinks he'll go to the next election because the Conservative Party doesn't have much talent in it. 
when uh, you sorry, when you say go to the next election, are you are you saying he'll lead the party into the next general election, or do you think he'll step aside and then someone else will take the party through the through the general? Part of me thinks that will happen simply because it's if I was a Tory, it's better the devil you know, isn't it? That the the candidates that have been touted, your Liz Trusses, your Rishi Sunaks, your Pretty Patels, and quite controversially, according to the Sunday Times, the Matt Hancocks of this world thinking they can run. I think they would be disastrous for the Conservative Party and they don't they don't have the appeal that Boris Johnson does. I think if say a Liz Truss done exactly what Boris Johnson has been doing the past two years in all of his misgivings, I think the Tories would be, you know, turfed out for generations. I think Boris Johnson does have this facts where people can give him the benefit of the doubt. Whether or not that continues, I don't know. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if it's cock up after cock up if it's now having a real effect in the polls, which, you know, you're looking at this week's polls, for example, is this the week the polls turn towards Labour? Because they are turning, you know, it, it's now five, six, seven, eight, nine points ahead. He becomes an electoral liability. And we know that the Tory party are ruthless when it comes to this. The minute that you become a liability, you have to go. I, it's a hard, I think if he was to go, it would be in 2022. So next year. But I do think, I think that I think he'll go into the next election. Which, again, I, I just don't know. I think it, it's so up in the air. It can go either way, and I know it's a bit of a cop out answer, but it, there's so much yet to happen that can damage him or even save him that you can't be one thousand percent sure. I think we said this back in at the height of the pandemic that I'd be shocked if Boris Johnson survives this, and he did. But again, there's no vaccine bounce this time to save him. I don't see what's going to come to save him. It, it will be down to the Tory party. I, I'm, but I will put on account and say, I think he'll go into the next election just because there's no one else in the Tory party to, to do it. My prediction, Boris Johnson will not be Prime Minister next summer. That's my <laughs> guess. That's my guess. Do you think um, it'll be like a spring coup then? Or... Yeah. Basically, I, th- I think they'll have a leadership election in the summer. But He's the, my the, guess. Then the next question then would be, do you think the next leader, whoever that is, do you reckon they go to the country? Because that's, <laughs> that's, that's a weird one, isn't it? Because... That's a podcast in itself, Zach, and I've got <laughs> two minutes until dinner. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think they do. Because... They do a job major and just who, who are the? Let's think about who the plausible options are. Preeti Patel is not particularly popular amongst the broader electorate i don't think she'd want to rush to the to the to the people i i can't think of a conservative a a prominent conservative who would be able to there's one actually unless rishi sunak is next in line and is and and by de facto next prime minister i think he's the only one who has the personal charisma and the personal gravity whether or not you think he warrants this personal recognition or not is kind of irrelevant but i think he's kind of still well received from the public because of furlough and stuff like that fair enough um i think he's the only one who could go to the people and say let's have an election mm. i think everyone else would lose like matt hancock i i, I texted you this sack imagine having the self-confidence of matt oh, no. hancock be... who was who resigned in dis- we often don't use this phrase but it's entirely accurate he designed he resigned in disgrace like three months ago and he's considering a run for prime minister. 
He's got no chance. Um, Michael Gove. Michael Gove is the guy who backstabbed Boris Johnson. Is he trustworthy? Probably not. It's it's slim pickings, isn't it? Yeah, and that that's why I just think it is better the devil you know is in. I don't think I think it could be one of those things at the next election that whoever you put up against because they've been in office for so long and I think we we suggested this last week that all of this scandal that's kind of brewed is kind of this byproduct of a government that's just been in for too long and it could be a natural thing of it's time for a change and whoever was to go into the next election is going to have a really tough time of it because like we said this is not Boris Johnson asking for a second term it's Boris Johnson asking for a fifth conservative term which is absolutely unprecedented in our politics our modern politics for sure and that, that now is six o'clock which means sadly we have to part ways everyone listening thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the midfield politics podcast my name is luke james and as always i've been joined across the spatch box by none other than zach green you can follow zach on twitter at ZG1999 underscore. I got it right this week, Zach. Absolutely. Congrats to me. Um, You can follow (laughs) me on Twitter at LukeJames underscore 32. Which I've been providing a little bit of late at Midfield Politic. And remember, we're going to have a Christmas special coming up on, well, on Christmas. But until then, we'll we'll have podcasts in between. So do look forward to those. As always, and I feel like this this outro is, is more Stay safe and keep voting.